0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My daughter and I are here for a special announcement, which is that Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was just nominated for a Webby Award in the <laughs> arts and culture category for podcasts. So please, please vote by April 18th so that I can win the People's Choice component of this award. And now my daughter has a little something to say. Hi. Hi. I love my mom so much. and She's been working really hard for this podcast to be on Instagram. <laughs> and I also want you to know that I love her. So please, please, please vote for Zibby right. This is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And I love my mom so much. Please vote for Zibby Owens' Webby Awards. The website is vote.webbyawards.com. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm thrilled to be interviewing Claire Bidwell-Smith today. Claire is the author of the amazing memoir, The Rules of Inheritance. She also wrote After This, When Life is Over, Where Do You Go? and most recently, Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. The Rules of Inheritance has been published in 18 countries and is currently being adapted for film. Claire has contributed to many media outlets, including the New York Times, HuffPost, Slate, and many TV, radio shows, and podcasts. A graduate of the New School with a master's from Antioch University, she is a grief counselor in Los Angeles. She lives in Santa Monica with her husband and three children. So, Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really beyond thrilled to be interviewing you today. So, thank you. Thank you. So, Let's start with you telling listeners who might not know what the Rules of Inheritance was about. And we're sharing this microphone, so for any delays, I'm passing this back and forth for technical issues. So, <laughs> anyway, I also need to mention that I have my
1: three-month-old baby here, so <laughs> if we hear him, it will just add to the fun. <laughs> Rules of Inheritance is my first book. It's a memoir about losing both of my parents to cancer. They both got cancer at the same time when I was 14, and I'm an only child, so it was really challenging to kind of go through all of that and feel really alone and set apart from my peers. My mom died when I was 18 and my father died when I was 25. And I didn't know anybody who was going through anything like that. You know, most of my friends were living normal lives, going off to college, kind of on the usual trajectory that we're supposed to go on. And mine was really skewed. And my mother's death was really hard. She was my world. I loved her. We were incredibly close. And She and my father had very different deaths. She really struggled to face hers and to come to terms with the fact that she was dying. And she kind of tried up until the end to go through various things. And so when she died, it just completely floored me. I didn't see it coming. My father died seven years later when I was 25. And his death was really different. He kind of really embraced it and really helped me to embrace it. And so it was just a different experience completely. But throughout both of them, I was always writing. I've been a writer since I was a kid. It's as an only child, I think it was kind of this internal thing I did. I read all the time. My parents were older and I just kind of got dragged around on a lot of trips and they were always having parties with grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> That's my baby. And I just have my nose in a book all the time. And so I started writing at a really young age and it became my outlet for understanding the world and making sense of things and myself and so when they were sick and going through all of their things and then their deaths i just wrote through it all just to kind of keep myself sane you know i had so much in internally that really it was helpful to get it out in writing and so after my father died i started writing even more i was writing about him while he oh mister
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to pick him up you can okay you can ask me another question in the middle Okay, keep adding on to it. You had such a beautiful scene, by the way, when you were with your father, and he was like, "You just have to let me go." I yeah. was like, ready to cry. It was anyway. Hi. Oh Is that
1: You want
0: to sit on my lap with me? <laughs> <laughs> Here. Here, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read a scene while you while you deal with your baby, and we can uh, we can come back to it. There were so many things I wanted to quote from your book, but I want to start with this whole thing about grief because I feel like you're this brilliant writer about grief. And now you've dedicated your whole life to helping others get through it. After three years without your mom, you wrote, In three years, my grief has grown to enormous proportions, where in the very beginning I often felt nothing at all. Grief is now a giant sad whale that I drag along with me wherever I go. It topples buildings and overturns cars. It leaves long furrowed trenches in its wake. My grief fills rooms. It takes up space and it sucks out the air. It leaves no room for anyone else. Grief asks like a jealous friend, reminding me that no one else will ever love me as much as it does. Grief is a force, and I am swept up in it. And then later, after your father passes away, you write, If grief was once like a whale or like a knife, it became a vast nothing, expanding outward from the very core of who I am. All mm-hmm. oh, so beautiful. So just the whole book was, like, gut-wrenching and beautiful and addictive and amazing. Tell me how you feel your grief, you almost, like, chart the waters of where it goes, and sort of it's shape-shifting over time. Can you tell me a little more about that and how you were so aware of your relationship with the grief as you went through it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't always aware of it. When I wrote that book,
1: I was very aware of it. And at the time that I wrote the book, I was 30, and I was newly married and had just had my first daughter, and I was working in hospice as a grief counselor. And um, when I started working in hospice, I began to see grief in a much more three-dimensional way. I'd always known my own grief, but when I really started to see so many other people who were grieving... was a different experience. And I, I really began to understand it and understand my own journey and process through that lens too. So it was really helpful in that regard. And there was a lot of my journey in grief that I didn't recognize at the time as grief. You know, It was just confusing. I just thought I was angry or there was something wrong with me or I just tried to ignore it. And then as I moved through it and then later working in hospice and then really diving into the grief world, I saw all of my journey for what it was. And so when I sat down to write this book, it's organized around the five stages of grief. So denial, bargaining, depression, anger, acceptance. And I divided the whole book up into that. And I what I did was I sat down and I i, I wrote those five stages down. And then I wrote down three times I had been in each of them. Mm-hmm. So three times I'd been in denial, three times I'd been angry like throughout my journey. And really it was kind of, born out of again working in hospice and people kept coming to me to talk about the five stages and they had a lot of confusion about them, all my clients and the people I was working with, and they would come and they would say, I don't get these five stages. I think I'm stuck in one or I skipped one or I am do you know, I I'm I'm circling back to another one and do I have to go through them in this perfect fashion. And I wanted to show how fluid they are and how they're not that linear. And so my story became nonlinear as well and just kind of like these layers of grief that I went through.
0: And, and you mentioned you mentioned in um, in your anxiety book, Anxiety, the Missing Stage of Grief, you mentioned how the the stages were originally for people who were dying, not the people coping with loss and how there's like a lot of confusion about that and, yeah. and how anxiety is also, should be a part of that, but unfortunately is is not. And so people often miss it in a way. They do, yeah. So I've
1: gone on to become, I've written three books now. I'm a therapist specializing in grief and I keep seeing these this confusion around the five stages. So I've written about them in every book I've written. And I love Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who coined the five stages. But like you said, she was originally intending them to be for people who were dying. And they make a lot of sense in that regard. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You go through those five stages when you face a terminal diagnosis. Not so much with grief. Um, There's more stages. There's, you know, they're not, this perfect formula but the reason that everybody clings to them is because we want a perfect formula when we're grieving it's so hard it's one of the most difficult things we'll go through he is trying to grab the microphone (laughs) and it's very cute no it's (laughs) fine it's very cute
0: (laughs) I just want to make it clear for anyone who's listening what that noise is (laughs) So how did you go? So you had some sort. You were writing a blog while you were going through all this. Let's go back to Rules of Inheritance. Sorry to keep jumping around, but you were writing a blog. So the the writing you did to sort of help yourself, you were sharing with others. And then it was mentioned. You said in, in uh, the Rules of Inheritance that there was a an article about the top 20 blogs at the time, and yours was one of them. And then I guess there was some demand for your book, your blog to be a book. So tell me about how it went from blog to book, and and you know you had a lot of misgivings about it in the middle, and how how did it take this form? Sure.
1: I was an early blogger. Um, they were still called web blogs back then. Um, it was 2002 when I started blogging, which is a long time ago. I know. And it felt like a natural extension of all the writing I had been doing in school. I just graduated my undergrad and <laughs> are you smiling at her? I really missed writing and having somebody to be accountable to. So I felt like a blog was a good way to do that. And then my father began actively dying and it became this really necessary outlet for me. And I was writing all the time. And um, and then all these people started reading it because I was kind of writing this really raw stuff about my father and, and he died while I was, you know, writing that blog. And then a couple, like a month later, out of nowhere, the Sydney Morning Herald um, in Australia named it one of the top what, 25 blogs or whatever it was in the world. And I got all these readers and attention and an agent yeah, this I had. I got this big fancy New York agent. Right away, this agent was asking me if I wanted to write a book, and I was like, "Yeah," but I was twenty-five, and my father had just died, and the story wasn't done yet. I didn't know how to do it. So yeah, but I kept up with it. I so the story about Rules of Inheritance that a lot of people find interesting is that I wrote three versions of it. The one that that is published and on shelves is the third and final version. But I wrote the first two complete, full manuscripts that are all three. Manuscripts are different. And it took me writing it three times to really nail it. And it took eight years. Yeah. And I just kept writing it. I kept coming back to, to this story. And I feel like when people talk about writing books, like they see this book and they they've heard of it and they'll, you know, they think it's just something I just kind of dashed off, right? Like it was some easy thing, and it was not easy at all. I really had to kind of wrench this book out of me and write it many
0: times to understand how to tell the story. So did you, just curious, so you chose not to use any punctuation marks. Was it always like that or not like any, no any quotes, I'm sorry, Yeah. no punctuation. Yeah, there's no. no, no punctuation in the whole thing. There's not a single period. No, I'm sorry. There are no quotes around any of the dialogue, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like it worked so incredibly well. And like, you don't indent, like it's just like, it's yeah. like a whole, it's almost like stream of consciousness, Like almost like poetic in a way Mm -hmm. in its form. Was it always was it like that in all the drafts, or was that like a later invention? No, it was only the final draft that I did that for. Um, And
1: (laughs) it's okay. It was only the final draft that I did that for, and uh, the other ones were much more traditional. And one of the big things that changed with this this final draft was writing in present tense, mm-hmm. and that the the lack of rotations and the lack of indentations kind of came with the present tense writing. It was very like just kind of poured out of me at that point. And the present tense is, I think, kind of what makes a lot of things about this book like work the way it does.
0: And just to be clear, this is. Yes, it's about losing your parents, this book, but you have so much more in there. I mean, I even found the in the beginning you talk about when you went away to college and of course you did it to show, you know, the juxtaposition of what happens after your mother's visit. But even just well, let me find this quote. I wrote about Your mother visiting you in college, you said. As the weekend went on, my mother grew too loose with me. She let me ignore her, let me smoke cigarettes in her rental car, and invited my friends out to dinner with us on the second night. She seemed desperate for me to let her in, but I had only just discovered how to be without her. Why would I want to let her in? On Sunday, I watched her drive away, my lip between my teeth. Blood on my tongue from the force of it, and that was just like I felt like it clarified for me, like why was I rude to my mom all of college? You know, you have this way of sort of getting into each moment in life, not just the loss, mm-hmm. but figuring out, like, you know, why it's so complicated, right? Especially mother-daughter relationships and separation anxiety and the whole thing. And I don't know. I felt like that passage. I was like starring it and like turning down the page. I was like, yes, that's it. Like you finally learn to. Be independent, and so you're reluctant to. It's like it feels so tenuous that you can keep it that
1: way. Oh yeah. So anyway, just it's still brutal to look back on sometimes, you know, and especially being a mom now. I have a almost 10 year old, and she she has these moments where she just pushes me away, and she's mm-hmm. so you know I hate you, mom, because <laughs> I because I won't let her wear sweatpants to school, right. and I flash back on all that time with my own mom. But you know, I think I wasn't aware of. Being like that in the moment. It was only later. But it was—it came so fast when she died. The moment she died, all of a sudden, our relationship was finite. You know, it was over. All these things, the, the ways I could have repaired that or apologized for it or come through in a different way later on, it, all of that was lost and gone. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but review our relationship and all those moments like that. They just... They ate me up for a long time, and writing about them helped me to release them and to kind of forgive myself as well.
0: In your other, your third book, Anxiety, you give such you give advice to people like write a letter Mm -hmm. or or how to address the guilt that Mm -hmm. you feel because there's also obviously a lot of guilt for what isn't said or Mm -hmm. how you handled it. And I feel like in *Rules of Inheritance*, you were like, I wanted to give you a hug. You were like beating yourself (laughs) up so much. I could like on that drive down, and you're oh my gosh, that passage was like. Insane. I read it out loud to my husband. I was like, listen to this. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things I see in grieving people more than almost anything, is. I haven't really come across anyone who hasn't walked away from a loss without some something they feel guilty about, something they wish they could go back and change or do differently. And those things can really eat us up. And even though that relationship you know, is over in many ways and we can't actually go back and change things, we can still kind of work through it in, uh, internally. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, we can work through it and we can make amends, you know, and we can make amends within ourselves and even with those people, maybe spiritually. So there's a lot there.
0: I lost my best friend on 9-11. She was my roommate wow. and, like, closest friend. And I had a lot of, you know, unresolved. I mean, we were 25 when mm-hmm. she died, and I ended up, like, taking her mom out to lunch and, like, apologizing for some of the mm-hmm. things, you know, that just happened over the course. Like, because there's no way to tell the person you're sorry. Like, yeah. hey, I wish I hadn't handled things so immaturely when, like, you were staying at my mom's house that time or whatever. I wish I had called you more than twice when I went to business school. or You know, some yeah. all these things. So I was like... I just sat with her mom and I was like, Here are the things I'm sorry for. Anyway.
1: Yeah, and that's beautiful and we have to we have to be able to do that. You know, we have to otherwise those things kind of live inside
0: of us and they fester and
1: yeah, we have to let them out.
0: It was great your advice. It was like Getting through the the memoir, and then you have like this companion. And I haven't, I didn't read your other book yet, but the companion to like getting through. I don't know, it was, it was just so great. You also do a really beautiful job of talking about what happens when you're in a really unhealthy relationship, mm-hmm. which could be its own book, honestly. It was mm-hmm. so good, <laughs> and just the way you write about relationships in general, like with this boyfriend you had early on. You said, I feel like actually he wasn't even really a boyfriend. Well, he was anyway. I feel like I'm constantly on the verge of scaring him off. I stay still, make no sudden movements. I'm careful with my sentences. I'm always amazed that he is still sitting there. I felt like that was such a perfect way of that insecurity you feel around some people you're with that like you can't you're almost like you're gonna jinx it if you say the wrong thing and like you know, you had like idolized this guy, the motorcycle and the whole thing and you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. And then later on when you have get into this sort of not abusive but just very unhealthy situation and the way you write about that and finally your ability to break through it. I mean, I feel like that is, in, in its own, an inspirational book. I mean, I was also wondering as I read it, like, did he ever read it? Like, was that his real name? Did he read it? What happened after? Did he? <laughs> I don't know if he's read it. He's here in Los Angeles,
1: and I haven't seen him in years and years. I changed his name, and— <laughs> You want to take, him? Yeah, take All right. it? Yeah. Okay. For passing the baby. <laughs> I changed his name and some of his identifying characteristics. I mean, nothing that would that changed the story at all, but just to keep him like from suing me, <laughs> which is you know something that you kind of go through after you write the book. But that was an intense relationship. He had been through his own grief. I had been through my grief. We were living in Manhattan together in our early twenties, and we were just like a hot mess, you know, drinking all the time, just in pain all the time. And there were beautiful things about that relationship too. It's such a dark and twisted relationship, and so unhealthy. And it, I know it's painful to read from the outside as well. But when my mother died and I just felt so alone and he was this person that understood this, this whole inside of me, you know, and are you smiling away at me? Yeah. And so there were a lot of, there was a lot of beauty in it too. And when the way the book is arranged, since it's told out of fashion, you don't actually see us connect and fall in love until towards the end of the book. And so you've seen a lot of the darkness in that relationship before you actually get to the you know, the sweetness of the very beginning of it. Which I think was an interesting way to do it.
0: Somehow made sense to me to do it that way. And then you also later show not that it's the way out to help other people, but you did show that you know after you got to a place where you were helping others when you did the tutoring and helped with Dave Eggers' project in LA. How giving back made you. So much. I'm sorry with the baby squirming. But anyway, tell me how the act of sort of throwing yourself into helping others took you out of your own grief for a little bit.
1: Yeah, that was the thing that really saved me. I felt so empty and purposelessness and life felt very meaningless after my parents died. I just, I was so deep in my depression and I couldn't figure out what I was doing, what the point of anything was. He looks so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sitting on Zippy's lap, just looking so happy. <laughs> She's bouncing him as I talk. And... You know, I knew Dave Eggers, He he, his book A Heartbreaking Work of staggering Genius had come out around the same time and he was a few years older than me and he'd also lost his parents and I was like, oh my gosh, perfect, we're going to get married he's a writer, he's cute, I'm a writer, our parents are dead, this is going to be great, we're going to totally get married and everything's going to be perfect and <laughs> we did not get married he married a lovely woman named Vanda LaVita <laughs> and I did end up working for him though and I kind of because I thought we would get married, I, I was following him and following his work that he did. And he'd opened a nonprofit tutoring center and that works with underprivileged and underserved school systems. And I ended up working there really just intent on trying to marry Dave Eggers and then found that it completely changed everything and healed me to be, you know, giving of myself and working with these kids. And I was getting up in the morning and having a place to go and something like that was worthwhile of my time. And it, just was the thing that finally pulled me out of my depression and gave me kind of purpose in life again. And I've never gone back from there. I went from that job to working with homeless people, went from there to grad school. Out of grad school, I worked in a lot of like underserved mental health clinics, and then I'm in private practice now. And yeah, buddy. And so it's always, now it's become just like a huge part of my life too be of service in some way all the time.
0: So the rules of adherence is maybe going to be a film or is it
1: so Jennifer Lawrence picked it up right away, even before it had even come out on the shelves and she read it and she loved it. And this was right before she won the Oscar for silver linings. So she was like ever she was famous, but then like that same time she like really hit it big. And it was amazing. We had it there was a whole deal that went through. I, you know, talked and met with her many times. She was great But there was a writer, a director producer on the project. And then it just, like, as things do in Hollywood, it eventually kind of fell apart. She got really busy, the screenplay had trouble, and it just kind of all fell apart. And it was fine. I was never quite sure about, like, the whole movie aspect of it. It's still kind of circulating. Emma Roberts was more recently interested in it. I've been trying to adapt the screenplay myself at the urging of my film agent and I'm not a screenwriter and this book is really hard to adapt. Mm -hmm. It's a tough one to put together in a screenplay. So it's kind of always kind of simmering, but not currently. And do you have plans for another book? I don't know. I've written three books and had three babies, and they've all come together. And so I'm kind of nervous to start another book because I'm worried it's going to like get me <laughs> pregnant somehow. And Because like, I don't know if I can have, write a book without having another baby, and I don't want to have any more babies. Even though you're so cute, I have so many babies now. But no, of course, I will definitely write another book. I don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. Each one I've written, there's kind of a postpartum period where I... Just need to let the book be out in the world and then, oh yeah, is that funny? Often, whatever shape that book takes and like all the things it brings into my life and the opportunities and the people I meet, and that usually kind of informs what the next book will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, my second book, which was about the afterlife. I just kind of got more into the grief world, and I started hearing a lot more from people. And that's when I started to see all this anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then so that was the next book. And so I'm not sure yet what's coming. Relationships are a big one. People keep talking to me about relationships, and I'm very interested in relationships. I'm on my second marriage now and have stepchildren, and and I just see how much relationships are impacted by grief as well, right. how much those things change with the grief process. So that might be the next book. Excellent. And do you have any advice for aspiring writers? Oh my gosh, just to write all the time, but to not overthink it. I think that's one of the things people sit down and they want to write a perfect first sentence, a perfect first paragraph, the perfect book, Mm -hmm. and it's never that way. I mean, I threw away two entire books that I wrote before I could get to this one, but I'm grateful to them. I couldn't have written this version without having written all the bad versions, right? So we have to be patient and just diligent and keep writing, writing and writing and
0: writing. Well, thanks to you and Everett for coming on mums. Don't have time to read books. Do you have anything to say, Betty? What do you think? Do you want to talk? Oh, you want no. to eat the microphone. No,
1: no we're not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for
0: coming on thank us. you. <laughs> thanks. Today's episode was sponsored by Serialbox, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, Serialbox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.